Good morning. Um, <laughs> open your Bibles. We're going to start in uh, John chapter 3 uh, this morning. And we're going to be kind of in a lot of places today. And uh, what we're doing for the next two weeks is we're going to look at, um, at a doctrine that is vital to the Christian faith, but is often either misunderstood or completely ignored. Okay, and so as we... Um, as we look at some of these doctrines, we've done this um, a few times before, looked at, at doctrines of, of the, the church and looked at things that matter. Um, what we're looking at is just truths that the, that the scriptures teach. Now, the new birth is something that every single Christian has gone through, has experienced, but many don't know what it is. Okay, uh, but what we're, what we're going to find here in John chapter 3 is that Jesus tells us that we must be born again in order to be saved. Okay, so it's obviously very important. All right, so open John chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 to 15. Um, and these, this really is uh, one of my very favorite passages in the entire Bible. So John chapter 3, starting with verse 1, says this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the, of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which a person is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses Lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much um, for this morning. God, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us uh, through your scriptures. God, we thank you that, um, that your word will not change. Uh, that, that you will not change. God, we, we gather here to worship you because you're worthy of it. And we pray that as we study your word, that you would sanctify us, that you would make us more like Christ. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, most um, Americans know the term born again. Most, uh, uh, all Christians are born again, most of them know what, know, have heard that term, okay? Most evangelicals, 
like to refer to themselves as born again. To be honest, though, I think in probably the last 10 or maybe 15 years, I think the terminology has changed, where in the 80s and 90s especially, um, uh, there were people referred to as born-again Christians, where today, now it's the term is evangelical Christian. I, th- I think there's kind of been a switch there. Pretty much they mean the same thing. Uh, born-again Christian, evangelical Christian, right? This is a Christian. This is someone who worships Jesus, uh, values the scriptures, has, has a high regard for the things of God, right? It's, it's a Christian. But we, we've heard the term, and we know that the term is good. And we can even look in the Bible and see that we must be born again in order to even see the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us that very clearly. But what does it mean to be born again? What, what is the second birth? Non-Christians especially have no idea what the second birth means. And if they did, they would flat out reject it. <clears throat> but a lot of Christians, professing Christians, who really do love Jesus and really, you know, really are Christians, they don't really understand what it means to be born again. They don't understand the doctrine of the second birth. There is wide disagreement within Christianity of of what the second birth is and what it means. Okay? So, how is a person born again? Nicodemus was a brilliant man. He was a religious leader. He was just just a brilliant, successful person. He was totally confused by the idea of being born again. Jesus completely stumped him. Right? We saw that when we read John 3. How is a person born again? Is it something that we do? Is it, are we born again? Is the moment when we're born again, when we get all of the evidence and, and we read the scriptures and we finally have that, that, that faith, that saving faith? Or is it something that God does to us? That God changes us, and at the moment that he changes us, that kind of changes who we are. We become a new creation at that moment, and then following that new birth, then we receive faith. Those, that's, those are kind of the two main beliefs. Is the second birth something I do, or is it something that God does to me or for me on my behalf? Is born again just another way of saying a Christian? Just kind of a, a metaphor that, oh, you know, I, I've become a Christian. I've became new. I'm no longer interested in sin. I'm, I'm interested in the things of God. And so I'm born again. I'm like a new creation. In order, in order to understand, you know, let me pause here for a moment. Um, the new birth... Um, another way to say the new birth, and, and I have a habit of using another word for it. I call it regeneration. They're the same thing, okay? So regeneration, the second birth, the new birth are the same thing. There's some other terms for it, but I always just use regeneration. So I'm going to try to say new birth, but you might hear me say regeneration. Know that they mean the same thing, okay? We're going to look at the nature and the fruit of the new birth today, and next week, we're going to look at the necessity of the new birth, okay? That, that one's kind of tough because we look at, at who we are without Christ. So let me just define this. Um, regeneration, or the second birth, is the spiritual transformation in a person brought about by the Holy Spirit that brings the individual from being spiritually dead to becoming a spiritually alive human being. 
Regeneration is another way of talking about the new birth or the second birth or being born again. Okay, so a born-again Christian is a Christian who has been regenerated. They mean the same thing. Some theologians, pastors, will use regeneration in a different way, um, but I use it just as a, it's totally interchangeable with a second birth. Okay, so now we know what it is, right? We know what regeneration or the second birth is. We saw the definition. What's the nature of it? How are we born again? Let me just say this, and next week we'll talk a little bit more about this, about who we are without Christ. But the scriptures describe the person outside of Christ very clearly, very consistently, but not very flattering. Here's what the scriptures have to say about the person who is not in Christ. And and ask this question of ourselves. In fact, what we're going to do is answer this question. How does God, the Holy Spirit, change a person who is without Christ to someone who worships Christ? Here's what the scripture says about that person. Right? Someone who is not in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says that they're dead spiritually. Okay? Uh, They hate the truth. They hate Jesus Christ, according to John 3. They dwell in darkness, according to John 1. They have a heart of stone, according to Ezekiel 11. They're helpless, according to Ezekiel 16. They cannot repent, according to Jeremiah 13. They are a slave to Satan, according to Acts chapter 26. Uh, They cannot see or comprehend divine truth, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's how the scripture describes someone who is not a Christian. So how does the Spirit of God take someone who is dead spiritually, hates truth, hates Jesus, dwells in darkness, has a heart of stone, and and who is a slave of Satan, how does the Holy Spirit take that person and make them worship Jesus? That's a radical transformation. The Scripture says that the person without Christ hates Christ. So all of a sudden, someone goes from hating Christ to worshiping him with everything that they are. How does that happen? How does the Spirit take that person, take that person who can't understand truth, to not only understand truth, but but be drawn to it and embrace it and love it? A person who one moment is the enemy of Christ and the next moment loves Christ with all his heart. That is a radical just completely, completely consuming transformation. And it's something that only God can do. John chapter 6, starting with verse 44. uh, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And it is, (coughs) excuse me, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. John Murray A famous theologian said this, he said, For unless God, by sovereign operative grace, had turned our enmity to love and our disbelief to faith, we would never yield the response of faith and love. Regeneration, the second birth, is completely and solely an act of God which man cannot cooperate. Can't. We saw who the man is. We saw the man before Christ. We saw who that is. He hates Christ. He lives in darkness. He's a slave to Satan. He can't understand truth. 
That person is not going to all of a sudden decide that Jesus is God and that that Jesus could save them from their sins. Because this person is still over here refusing to acknowledge that they are a sinner. One of of the ways that this is described is that people will teach that, you know, sin impacts us and damages us, kind of wounds us, but that sin doesn't impact every aspect of us. And so there's this tiny island of righteousness within us. And as we hear preaching and as we do those things, that that island of righteousness kind of responds to the gospel. And then that's how we're regenerated, right? Right when we become a Christian. The problem is, is that sin impacts every part of our life, every part. So there is no, right? According to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter three, there is no righteousness in us. We must be saved. We must be rescued. Next week, this point will seem obvious after we examine the passages that teach the necessity of regeneration. But most professing Christians believe that man must do something before he can be regenerated. That man has to initiate it. He has to do something. Catholics, Episcopalians, and and other high church denominations uh, believe that we're regenerated through baptism. That's one of the reasons why they do infant baptism, right? Protestant liberalism, which is really a rejection of the scriptures in favor of more of kind of a a, a humanism, a kind of a relativism, it often speaks of regeneration as kind of a self-reformation or renewal, kind of the higher spiritual element of man overpowers the lower animal element that dwells within him. And so it's this kind of personal reformation, this personal improvement. Evangelicals tend to fall into two categories. Some teach that regeneration is solely an act of human will, that that a person decides and makes the decision to respond and to believe. Others teach that man cooperates with the influence of the Holy Spirit and the Bible and chooses Christ and is then regenerated. The problem is, both views make regeneration synonymous with conversion. Regeneration is is not the same thing as conversion, okay? Uh, Often we we kind of, a lot of times, put it all under the same umbrella as salvation, uh, but there are a lot of different elements within salvation. So uh, regeneration is not the same as conversion, right? Both views that I just mentioned make man the ultimate decider of who is and who is not saved. Why do so many Christians who have such a high view of Scripture Err so badly on, on, on an important doctrine. The doctrine of being born again, the, the second birth, regeneration, is vital. I really think, I really think that so many evangelicals get this wrong because there's a, there's a popular teaching, it's a defective view of original sin. They reject God's absolute sovereignty over man. Uh, If man is dead, helpless, a hater of God, who's blind and deaf to spiritual truth, as the scripture clearly teaches, that man cannot cooperate with God at all in regeneration. He's a sinner. He's he's depraved. An unregenerate man can no more choose Christ as Savior than than a a rotting corpse in in a grave. Evangelicals, Um, are often, you know, there are a lot of doctrines that that we don't necessarily like or we don't appreciate or sometimes 
Sometimes doctrines can even be offensive. But if, if men are dead spiritually, which the scriptures tell us, if men are dead spiritually, only those whom God chooses to regenerate will repent and trust in Christ. The idea that, that men cooperate with God in, in regeneration, right, that, that's as, as absurd as, as saying that, that Lazarus cooperated with Jesus when he was resurrected. Right? Lazarus was just dead, laying in his tomb, and Jesus came in and resurrected him. Lazarus had nothing to do with it other than he was the one that Jesus resurrected. Jesus said in John 3, which we already read, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, regenerates those who God has given to the Son. In the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, Jesus says this. This is John 17, verse 9. He says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Those who believe in Christ were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's John 1.13. If you believe in Christ, if you trust in Christ, if you love Jesus, if you worship Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, it is not because of your lineage. It is not because you had great parents, although I, I hope you did. And it's not. It's not even because you made a, a choice or executed your own will. It's because God did something to you. God changed you. God regenerated you. God made you better. He made you able to see. He, he removed the blinders from your eyes. God did something to you. The Holy Spirit regenerated you, gave you a second birth, removed your heart of stone, and replaced it with a heart of flesh. The Bible teaches that in regeneration, the person does absolutely nothing. The person is absolutely, completely passive. God comes with, with regeneration to all, to all his people. This act of God is irresistible. No man has the power to say, I will not be born again, or to prevent God's work, or to put obstacles in his way, or to make it so difficult that it, it can't occur. The doctrine of regeneration exalts God. God receives all the glory because he does all the work. He's the one that does it. I, I didn't save myself. I didn't help God to save me. I didn't meet God halfway. I was dead. I, I was a rebel. I, I was shaking my fist at him. I wanted nothing to do with him, and he saved me. This doesn't mean that man does not <laughs> cooperate in later stages of the work of redemption. He does. Of course we cooperate. Of course we spend time in scriptures. Of course we can install disciplines in our lives, make good choices instead of bad, pursue holiness and righteousness instead of sinfulness. Of course we participate that way. But regeneration, regeneration is an act of God on a man's heart or a woman's heart. Biblical use, the word heart is different uh, than today's English word. In the Bible, heart 
heart represents every aspect of a man's nature, okay? Including intellect, will, emotions, every part of who he is. So because a man's heart is totally depraved, only an act of God upon the whole nature of that man uh, (coughs) is able to, to draw him into a Godward direction. So any view of regeneration that teaches only part of man is affected is not biblical. How the Holy Spirit changes a man's nature is a mystery. It's clear that it's clear that uh, man's substance or essence is, is not changed, right? So w- when you're regenerated, it's not like you look different. It's not like you're taller or shorter or better looking or, or uglier or whatever, right? You look the same. You, looking at them, you, you can't tell any difference. There's no physical change in a regenerated man. The Bible also <laughs> teaches that man is not made perfect or sinless through regeneration. Even the best Christians, the most faithful well, probably the most faithful man in church history outside of Christ, the Apostle Paul, right? Even the Apostle Paul admitted to struggles against sin and temptation. We see that in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 and 25. You can go back and read and, and talk about Paul's struggle with sin. But what we do know is in an, in an instantaneous act, the Holy Spirit implants in a man a new spiritual life. He regenerates him. He changes him. He transforms him. Gives him a second birth. And this change is so radical. The Bible refers to it as a new birth, a regeneration, a quickening. The change in a man's heart really has two aspects, um, purification and renewal. That comes out of Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So let's look first at purification. Passages in the Bible that discuss regeneration really uh, present the cleansing aspect in a couple of different ways. So there's the sprinkling of clean water. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. All right, the New Testament parallel to Ezekiel's teaching is Christ's statement to Nicodemus that we already read in John 3, 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the religious use of water... To Nicodemus, he would have absolutely understood. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. They were like, uh, like the religious rulers of the day. They were the main party that hated Jesus the most, by the way. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's, a, he's well-versed and well-educated in religion. He would have understood Jesus' connection. The sprinkling with water and the washing with water in the Old Testament symbolically represented God's internal purification of the sinner. Nicodemus understood this. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about. Purification is sometimes represented as the circumcision of the heart. We saw that in Romans chapter 2 when we studied it. We also see it in Colossians chapter 2 here. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Purification is also represented as a removal of the heart of stone. You hear me mention this one quite a bit, right? Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. 
I will, give you a, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Stony heart is the heart hardened by sin, right? Which represents man's inability to move in that Godward direction. The, the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed for, for God's people, is the foundation of regeneration, and the application of redemption by the Holy Spirit flows from Christ's atoning sacrifice, right? So <coughs> that's what we're seeing. So that's where, we're, that's where we get the, um, the purification. That's, that's what we're talking about in regeneration. We're purified. We're cleansed. We're made new. We're no longer filthy by our sin. But we're also restored. We're also renovated. That's the second aspect of the change. Scriptural terms used to describe man's spiritual birth, again, are, are born again, regeneration, made alive, quickened. A person regenerated by God is called a new creation. Twice in the New Testament, they're called a new creation. That's, that happens in Galatians 6 and 2 Corinthians 5, by the way. And then they're also called a new man in Ephesians chapter 4. Something radically changes when we're regenerated. We're not the same. This aspect is represented in, in the heart of stone. Remember what the heart meant. The heart meant everything that you are. And so God takes that heart of stone, that your identity that is made of stone, that, that's, been, that's been hardened by sin, and God takes it out of your flesh and he puts in a soft heart, a heart of flesh. In other words, he changes your identity. He changes who you are. You are born again. You're a new creation, a new man or a new woman. This isn't just something like, oh, hey, I make better decisions because, you know, I want to be good now. No, you're radically changed, a new person. And the uncircumcised heart, becoming a circumcised heart, Christ referred to the new birth as being born of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul calls it a renewing of the Holy Spirit. When Christ said to Nicodemus in, in John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit, he was telling Nicodemus that the Holy Spirit was the author of regeneration and that the regenerated person had become a spiritual person. They're no longer who they were. They're no, lo no longer of the flesh. The person who is regenerated has spiritual reality opened up to him. He understands where he stands. He understands that he's a sinner. He understands that there's a holy God who's going to, to hold him accountable. He understands that there's a savior and he understands that he needs a savior because he's a sinner. When he reads or hears biblical truth, he knows that it's true and he, he believes it. The regenerating power of the Holy Spirit enables the sinner to see, to hear, to live. And therefore the, the regenerated sinner can repent can repent. He's able, once he's regenerated, to repent, which is a key for genuine faith. Conversion and saving faith is the fruit, not the cause of regeneration. A lot of Christians get that mixed up. It's very common to think that, that conversion is the cause of regeneration, when in actuality, regeneration happens before 
conversion. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Without this renewal, this spiritual renewal, which is purely a gift of God, and it depends on, on nothing that we do, no one would turn to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you've put your faith in Christ, you trust Jesus, you, you acknowledge that you're a sinner, it's because God has renewed your heart. God, God regenerated you. He gave you a new heart, enabling you to believe, to trust, to have a faith in Jesus Christ. You guys know the story in Acts chapter 16 of the Apostle Paul when he's ministering to someone named Lydia, right? Why did Lydia believe the gospel? Why did Lydia believe Paul, respond to the gospel? The scripture tells us in Acts 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. See that? He regenerated her. Those who distort the biblical doctrine of regeneration by making man the cause of regeneration are, are really are guilty of a serious error. Right? It's one thing to be wrong. It's, it's another thing to completely distort it because God alone deserves the credit. God alone deserves the glory. God, God alone learned, deserves the glory for even the salvation of men. Jonah says salvation is of the Lord. God did not make me savable. God saved me. He completed the work. Jesus said on the cross, work, it is finished. It's done. He did all the work because that way I can't boast. That way I can't take credit for what he's done on my behalf. Regeneration is the beginning, the starting point, the fountain of all saving graces, which are subjectively applied to the sinner. Let's look at the fruit of the new birth. When Jesus told Nicodemus, that which is born of the spirit is spirit, he's saying that being born again inevitably means that it will lead to a person becoming a spiritual person. They understand spiritual things. Right? They've been revived, spiritually speaking. Regeneration will, without fail, lead to conversion. It will happen. Jesus did not say that regeneration would make salvation a possibility if one cooperates with the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not say that regeneration would make a person savable. The Holy Spirit's power is irresistible, invincible. This doesn't mean that men are forced or coerced into the kingdom against their will. They're not but their heart is changed in such a way that the unwilling became willing and the unable became able. It's very simple. God's not dragging us into his kingdom like, like some sort of caveman who, who clubbed a, a lady and dragged, you guys, I saw those cartoons all the time when I was a kid of the caveman dragging a, that's probably really inappropriate now that I think about it, uh, but that, 
That's not how it's, that's not how it's done. God does not drag us into his kingdom. That's not what happens. God changes us. He changes our heart. He makes us willing. He makes us understand. He removes the veil from our eyes so that we see it and we want it and we love him and we worship and we serve him. So we happily run into his kingdom because we're exposed to our sin and his holiness. The truth is shown to us. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we run to him? A person who's regenerated embraces Christ because he wants to. Because the person regenerated recognizes that he's a sinner, recognizes that he's, he's rebelled against the holy, righteous God of heaven. After he's regenerated, Christ becomes the most important person in his life. The Savior becomes to him like a hidden treasure. Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. After the Holy Spirit regenerates a person's heart, it's impossible for that person not to respond to the preaching of God's word, not to respond to the reading of God's word. Regeneration always leads to conversion. Faith is the instrument where the sinner lays hold of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's why I understand why, because regeneration always leads to conversion, I understand why a lot of people mix that up, that, that regeneration is conversion, but they're two different things. True faith is always accomplished by genuine repentance. John makes it clear that a regenerated person cannot lead a life characterized by sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John's not saying that Christians never sin. He's saying that if you are born again, your life is not characterized by sin. As Jesus said, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Someone who before regeneration, you know, lived for their sin, lived to indulge, lived to, you know, get drunk and smoke dope and do whatever it is that, that depraved people do. Someone who lived that way, once they're regenerated, they abandon those same activities. They're not interested in them anymore because they recognize sin. They recognize the Savior. They recognize that Christ saved him from that. Everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him, 1 John chapter 2. The biblical doctrine of regeneration teaches that not only what Christ has accomplished for us objectively through a sinless life and atoning death as a free gift of God, but also what the Holy Spirit accomplishes us in us subjectively, fruits of regeneration. It's a free gift from God as well. And sometimes we miss that. Sometimes we miss the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation. And we take credit for what the Spirit of God has done on our behalf. Don't be foolish. You don't get to take God's glory. Neither do I. Those who believed in Christ and repented of their own power, if that were true, repented of their own power, they'd have a reason to boast. They would. Salvation from start to finish is a work of God. If faith in Christ and repentance are something that a man can do apart from God's grace, apart from being regenerated by God, then salvation is not wholly a work of God. And man would have a reason to boast. 
If, if God did part of the work and I did part of the work, then I get to stand up and say, look at what I did. I, I, look how wise I am because I, I recognize Jesus. Look how moral I am because I decided to, to, to repent of my sins. Look how good I am. Look at what I've done. Look at, look at what I've accomplished. God doesn't share his glory. And I have no right to boast because God saved me and my salvation from start to finish was completed by the holy God of heaven. The Bible teaches that regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit and, and that faith and repentance are gifts from God. Let me read a couple passages for you, then we can, we can close. Acts chapter 11. When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God has granted, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Those who believe in Jesus Christ do so because they were first radically changed by the Holy Spirit. They were made new, regenerated. They were born again, made a new creation. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. A proper understanding of the new birth is crucial for the Christian faith. This doesn't mean that if you misunderstand it that you're you know, not a Christian, right? But a crucial, an understanding is crucial. An unbiblical view of the new birth will compromise a lot of other doctrines that are, that are biblical, right? It is remarkable that most evangelicals who champion the new birth have a misunderstanding of what it means, They've made it dependent on man's choice rather than God's choice. There's no, no excuse for anyone to misunderstand this doctrine. The Bible is very clear in this area. The next week, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the need, excuse me, the need to be regenerated. And there is a lot to look at there. If you do not believe what the Bible teaches regarding the new birth, then you must must repent. You must repent and submit to Christ's teaching because the scripture is clear and there is abundant biblical teaching of the new birth. And here's what we find. Regeneration allows us to see the truth, allows us to understand the truth, spiritual truths, allows us to see our standing before God, that we are sinners, that we are depraved, that we are unable to move in a holy direction and in a direction towards God. This sin impacts every part of me. My, my entire heart has been impacted by sin. I am incapable, I am spiritually dead, and I am in need of a savior. I'm not in need of being revived. I'm, in need, I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm not in need of being healed. I'm in need of being revived because I'm dead spiritually. And when we're regenerated, what happens is our heart is changed and our eyes are open 
and we see the beauty of the God of heaven. We see the, the, the incredible grace that he showed to us. And when, we, when we're confronted with the words of the scriptures and we see that we read the gospels of how Jesus lived a perfect life and how he laid that life down and how he was crucified on a cross for my sins, then once I'm regenerated, my response is worship. My response is repentance because I'm exposed to this and I believe it and my eyes are opened and I'm broken and I cry out for grace and I cry out for mercy and I receive it because God is good and God is merciful and God follows through on his promises. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, we celebrate the fact that Christ died for our sins. We celebrate the fact that God became a man. Even though he was perfect, even though he was holy, majestic, he deserves his throne in heaven. He humbled himself and became a man. Lived a life as a, as a poor, humble servant and ultimately gave that life up to die for the sins that I committed. And elders, if you wanna move forward, we celebrate the fact that Christ saved me he saved me he saved me I didn't help him I, I, I didn't contribute I received it I was passive in all of it he did it when we celebrate the Lord's Supper we celebrate the fact that Christ died for my sins for our sins we read in Matthew chapter 26 Starting with verse 26, it says this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. The regenerated man understands what Christ did. He understands the new covenant. And he responds with faith, responds with worship. Today, as we take the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the fact that Christ sacrificed himself for us. Christ, the only worthy sacrifice, laid his life the sins that I committed. We celebrate that, that fact, but it's a somber celebration because we're confronted with the sins that we commit. We're confronted with the fact that Christ died for, for my own failures, for my own rebellion. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's a, time for, um, it's a time to evaluate your heart. It's a time to repent. It's a time to confess in prayer. It's a time to ask God for forgiveness. It's a time to confess or seek forgiveness or offer forgiveness from someone else in this room if need be. And while we, we certainly celebrate the Lord's Supper, if you've not put your faith in Christ, we ask that you don't participate. And if, if that's you, if, if, if that's who you are, we're glad that you're here. We hope you feel welcome. But the Lord's Supper isn't for you because it doesn't make sense for you to celebrate the fact that Christ died for your sins if, if you don't believe that he did. So I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you after this service or we could grab coffee this week and I'd love to talk to you about what it means to, to trust in Christ as your Savior. We ask that, the, that you don't participate in the Lord's Supper because we believe that that would be taking it in an unworthy manner.